A New Testament lesson this morning is found in Philippians 1. We are reading verses 27 through 30. This is God's Word. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pray. Father, as we gather before your word, We sit at your feet and desire to be taught. We pray that you give us your spirit, that we would have understanding and application of these truths in our hearts and in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Several years ago, as I was beginning to plant a church just on the forefront of that work, I was sent off to church planter boot camp. And Church Planter Boot Camp is like the last stop on the train before you launch your work, and it's somewhat designed to scare you off, that you would perhaps renege and not get into it. And there's a lot of helpful things that happen at Church Planter Boot Camp. You're surrounded by other foolish people who are also going to be committed to this same kind of endeavor, and you're studying the same kinds of things. And one of the days at Church Planter Boot Camp in Orlando, Florida, was spent discussing vision and values. What is the vision of your church plant and what are going to be the values that sustain it? And it was an important conversation, and we gathered into little huddles, and everyone shared about their vision and values. And of course, as a church planter, you're extremely idealistic, and you think you're going to bring the next Reformation because of your particular set of vision and values. And so we all shared our different vision and values. And then it struck me walking away that that this mechanism that we often use, it's part of the modern business world, and it's very helpful, but Paul didn't have the benefit of a vision and value statement. He didn't get to do that. He didn't have Twitter. He didn't have Facebook. He didn't have things like that. He wrote letters. But if we were asking the question, what would Paul put in his vision and values? What would be of most importance to him? You find places in his letters where he's emphasizing things, where he is highlighting them, bringing them to the forefront. And in verse 27 of Philippians chapter 1, we find one of those places. And he signifies it by saying this, only. Okay, Nothing else is important. Listen to this. Only. Okay, this is Paul's value. This is what he wants for this dearly beloved church that he had planted. A church that started out of a wealthy merchant woman, a slave girl who was demon-possessed, and a suicidal Roman guard. Those three people converted by God in the power of the Spirit, become this Philippian church, a wonderful work of God. And then he writes to them only. And so he wants to grab their attention, and he wants to grab ours as well, that there's something crucial, something essential. So what is it? What does he want to grab our attention with? Look in verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. 
This is his value. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, soon as I say those words, certain concepts begin to enter into your mind as to what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's important to work on this phrase just a little bit. You see, if you're reading along in the ESV, that there's a little uh, superscription, there's a number, and then you're referred to the bottom of the page, and that means that there's some alternate translations that are possible. And so if you look down there, you'll see this, that this phrase could also be read, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. And for various reasons, most modern commentators agree that this is a better translation, that the word for live here involves a political context, and it was used in the Greco-Roman world when talking about citizenship in a Roman city. And we've already discussed this idea that Paul is playing off of the idea of citizens of Rome versus the citizens of heaven. He says it explicitly in chapter 3, verse 20. And so here he calls these Philippians, who are Christians, a colony of heaven in the midst of the world, he calls them to live a life as worthy citizens of the gospel of Christ. That is his instruction. Now, for many of us, what we hear when we hear the words, live as worthy citizens of the gospel, what we hear is that we are to live as worthy citizens who earn the privilege of the gospel. And I want you to note that that's completely the wrong thing to hear. That that is not what Paul is saying. He is not saying to live to become worthy of the gospel. He's rather saying to live in a manner in keeping with the gospel. Citizenship in the first century world was a gift. It was a legal status that was bestowed on you. You had citizenship or you didn't. And Paul here is saying that you are citizens of heaven. You've been given this gift through the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's yours. Now live in a manner in keeping with that citizenship that has been bestowed upon you. That is what he's emphasizing. Only this. Now 14 years ago, I stood in, a con in front of a congregation about this size, and I took vows to my wife, Melissa Timms. And I swore my faithfulness to her, that I would belong to her. And I was declared that day in front of God and those witnesses that I was a husband. Now, over the last 14 years, it's been a journey as to what it means to grow as a husband. On that day, I was declared to be a husband. And then each day going forward, I have learned what it means to be a husband. Now, particularly in those early days, it was pretty rough at times because I had some experience with being a bachelor and I had certain ways of doing things. And suddenly there was someone like a private investigator in my life poking around and asking questions. And it didn't work for me, you know? It, I, I liked my bachelor way of doing things and I was finding it inconvenient. And it was particularly important for me to realize that what God was asking me in that moment, as I was trying to go back, reverting back to my bachelor ways, that he was asking me to be what he had declared me to be, that I was a husband, that I had to put away the bachelor, that it was now to be who I was. And friends, that's the same dynamic that Paul is applying here 
to Christians that we are to live as worthy citizens of the gospel because we are citizens of heaven. That's been declared about us. When our faith has been placed in Jesus, we are declared citizens. And now we are to live in a manner in keeping with that declaration. That's the dynamic of the Christian life. And so as he gives this command, it's not to earn something, but it's to live into a reality that God has declared about us. And so the biggest question for us this morning is what does that look like? What does it look like to live as worthy citizens of the gospel? As I mentioned, several things come to mind. Oftentimes, we think of the little trite phrase, don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, and don't go with the girls who do. You might think that, or you might have some other list of rules and behaviors that fall into place when it comes to being a worthy citizen of the gospel. But it's important for us to listen carefully to what Paul says, because I think it's a little surprising. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. What does it mean to be worthy citizens of the gospel? That we stand firm in one spirit. And Paul here is not focused on your private devotional life, as important as that may be. And he's not focused upon private spiritual exercise. What he's focused on is a community's life and witness together. Only this, stand firm in one spirit. This is what it means to have a life worthy of the gospel. And friends, we find this challenging in a multitude of ways. Let's face it, it's inconvenient for us. And I think there's two major ways that this call to a communal life where we stand together, united in one spirit, united in a common mind, I think there's two ways that we find this really inconvenient. And the first is this. It's inconvenient... That our, lot, that our faith, that our spirituality invest us in the life of others. Let's just be honest. Spirituality is very convenient when it only involves our prayers and our Bible reading and coming into a crowd and participating in something. But a spirituality that invests you in a community that calls you to be part of a congregation, a living member of that thing, is far more difficult. Robert Wuthnow, he's a sociologist at Princeton, he's written several books about the character of American spirituality. There's one quote that condenses his entire volume and, and almost his entire career. He says this, he says that we Americans like our spirituality like our hamburgers, quick and easy. That we like private practices. We like to be able to join larger crowds where we can be anonymous. That is the way that we prefer to do things. Wuthnow, in all of his, uh, in all the data that he's collected, this is what he's able to observe. That this is the way of American spirituality. And friends, it is really the opposite of what the gospel commends. 
only this. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, that you are standing firm in one spirit. See, the gospel doesn't come just to save people. The gospel comes to create a new people who would stand together, who would strive side by side with a common faith and a common heart and a common mission. All those notions of koinonia that we talked about in Philippians 1.5, that that's what the gospel comes to create, a people who are being saved by God on mission in the world. And it's inconvenient. We don't like it. Several years ago when I was a pastor at Second Presbyterian in Memphis, I took the young adults group to Buenos Aires to work with the Presbyterian missionary there. And we were sent out to build a food pantry in a, in a barrio outside of Buenos Aires. And so we arrived early one morning and began constructing. And we made a tremendous amount of progress. But we had eaten a very light breakfast, and then 12 o'clock arrived and we were still working. And then two o'clock arrived, and we had not had any lunch, and we were finally told to break for lunch. And it was a welcome relief. Blood sugar level was low, and tempers were flaring. Classic American style. And so then we were asked to gather firewood. Lunch wasn't there waiting on the table for us. We were asked to gather firewood, and so we gathered firewood and brought it in, and they lit a fire. And about 20 minutes later, when there were some coals and embers and the fire was hot, Um, Then a slab of meat was brought out and put on a skewer above the fire, and we all understood that we were not going to be eating anytime soon. And then Argentine Malbec was poured, and everything nice was brought out for us in the middle of our newly constructed food pantry. At 4.30, we returned to work. Two and a half hours later. And as we were first into the lunch, we were thinking, what an inefficient use of time that we could still be building if lunch had just been ready. But our Argentine friends hosted us at a meal, and it was a gift. They brought out their best. They welcomed us into something because it wasn't just about the food on the table. It was the fellowship around the table that was just as important to them. And friends, there's something for us to learn in that metaphor about what it means to be part of a church. It is gloriously inefficient. It invests you in relationships. It brings you into the life of others, and it's extremely inconvenient. That it's not a place where you just come and take. And no offense to those sitting in the back, but that's the, that's the analogy that we often use. Um, it's not a place where we just come and sit in the back and take, and we're not a part of something. It's a meal that we participate in, where we're invested in it, where we're of one heart and one spirit and one mind. That's the vision that Paul has for the church. That's the value that he's holding out when he tells us to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. And so we find it inconvenient. The second way we find it inconvenient is that it's inconvenient to address conflict in gospel-oriented ways. We said that the backdrop of this letter, you find it in chapter 4 in verses 2 and 3 where Paul instructs two women, Yodia and Syntyche, to reconcile with one another. And that call to reconciliation is just under the surface of everything that he talks about in the entire book. 
that these two women were arguing and fighting. Obviously, they were leaders in the church, and it was dividing the church. And so the emphasis on unity is because of this division that was taking place. They weren't getting along. It was challenging their corporate witness. People on the outside were able to see that they were of not, not of the same heart, not of the same mind. And Paul is calling them to unity. He's calling them to reconciliation. But I want you to note how he does so. Scan down into chapter 2. This is unique because when we enter into conflict, we tend to do one of two things. We tend to heat up and boil over addressing our grievances with the other person. Or we tend to shrink back And we normally don't shrink back into just being quiet and silent, but we shrink back into passive-aggressive kind of half-measures. And both are equally wrong. Neither pleases God. And Paul here gives the prescription for reconciled relationships. Look what he says. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you see where Paul begins with a gospel-oriented solution to conflict. He doesn't go right into crisis management, but he calls each of us to consider our orientation to one another. He calls us to consider how we think of ourselves. And that the heart of conflict is an exaltation of ourselves above other people. And this is what drives the dynamic and continues the conflict. And he encourages rather a gospel-oriented, uh, orient, personal orientation where we're to consider the interest of others ahead of our own. We're to subjugate ourselves and exalt the other person. This is the pattern and model of Jesus. This was his mindset, and we are called to live into that mind. And friends, this is the way that we reconcile conflicts. This is the beginning place. It is in how we understand ourselves. It's deeply inconvenient because we can't just blame the other person. We can't just say, hey, they did this, or this was done, or this was taken away from me. And at the heart of the church, this is crucially important. And it oftentimes gets overlooked, and it's easy to sweep under the rug. Christ's church has a 30-year history. There's been a lot of story written. There's certainly been a lot of conflicts. Any church has them. But God's word for us this week challenges us about our own personal understanding of conflict. Are we willing to engage it in this way? Certainly there are unresolved tensions in this room, things that have not been addressed Things that have been left cold for a long time. I want to put it in the microwave and reheat it for you this week. 
Because if we're going to ask that God build a community and restructure it and bring it together, we can't ask God to bless something when we're not together in heart and mind. It just won't work. We can have wonderful worship services where we bring in great guest musicians like we have this week. We can hire people to do things and bring in children's ministry and, and create that and do all kinds of things. We can have fancy sermons. But friends, God doesn't bless us unless we're seeking to walk in one spirit, having a common heart and mind, gospel-oriented to one another, putting the interest of others ahead of our own that unless the gospel is down in a community at this level, then we're really just putting lipstick on the pig. It's my favorite southern phrase, by the way. It's inconvenient, but God calls us into this. And I just ask every one of you to search your heart this week, to consider it. Where has it been inconvenient for you and you've chosen not to address it? Where have you boiled over at somebody and never really reconciled? Or where have you just been passive-aggressive and avoidant of a conflict that needs to be settled, that is impacting the life and the fellowship of the church? Please, for the sake of the church, lay down your interest, lay down your own preferences, and go and establish peace. Paul pressed this in Philippi, and he would have us do nothing less. Now, on that same trip to Argentina, I was sitting down at a cafe. You eat a light breakfast at 8 o'clock. You work until 2 o'clock. You eat a heavy lunch from 2 to 4. Then you're given coffee and sugar at 5 o'clock, and you eat dinner at 10. It's the most insane schedule ever. You go to bed at 3 and get up at 7.30 and do it all over again. And I remember at the five o'clock coffee time, sitting down with two young ladies who were part of the ministry that I was leading at that time, and uh, they said to me, and they were being genuine, they said, you know, in our, in our part of the church, we don't have real community. And so the conversation began, and I just asked them to explain that and how they were experiencing. And they said, well, you know, it's just fake, and people are just pretending. And so, well, explain, how have you experienced that? And so they went on to explain it, and they said, well, in our Bible study, there's one girl in particular who just gives the right answers, and she says what she's supposed to, and she always acts like she's better than everybody else, and she has her Bible verses memorized, and her life is all together, and mine is not. I'm divorced, and my life is all kinds of messy. And so then the question was asked, well, have you approached her about what it's like to be in her wake? And the answer came back from both of them, no. And friends, we can't complain about a lack of community when we're not going to be gospel-oriented about our communion with one another. Because unless we're willing to deal with the conflicts, we will never have this common heart and mind. We will not be striving side by side. We will not be living and fighting for a common faith. That's what it takes and the gospel gives you green lights with one another to talk about differences, to also own your own failures, to not be defensive, to say, yeah, I messed up there. I did it wrong. 
Because we have the knowledge that God forgives us and He receives us. And we can also receive one another in our own faults and wrongs. This is what it means for us to stand firm in one spirit. That's what it looks like when the gospel takes up residence in the heart of a community. But what happens when we do decide to live in this way? What happens to us when the gospel takes up residence like that? Paul explains in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And so what happens is that we strive together with confidence as a team for the gospel. That the church is not a crowd of people who just happen to be together on Sunday, but rather the church is a body. And you are a member, a member like an arm or a toe. You're part of the community. You're a living piece of it. And so we're striving together, and this brings about two implications. And the first is this, is that we have a positively defined mission. Look what Paul says again. He says, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now let's get some context on the message that Paul preached and the people that he was preaching to. Paul believed that Jesus, upon his death and resurrection, was installed as the world's true king. This is what we'll see in Philippians 2 next week, that Jesus was given the name above all names, that he is Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul lived in the context where the confession of faith was, do you know it now? Caesar is Lord. He was preaching Jesus is Lord. He's the king over all the world. And everyone around him who was a Roman citizen had to confess that Caesar is Lord. Now, which one did it look like ruled the world? Caesar. He was the one apparently in power. And these Christians were just a small group huddled in house churches worshiping this Lord Jesus. It must have looked very strange. Very strange. And there certainly were a lot of things not going right. Paul's being persecuted, he even tells us. But he's holding fast to his faith, and he's encouraging the church to do so as well. And he has a positively defined agenda. Even though he's in such a massive minority, massive minority, he believes that the world belongs to King Jesus, and so he's driving forward in his mission that one day that the water, even as the waters cover the seas, one day Jesus' glory will fill all the nations of the earth. And so he's driving towards that. That was his mission. It is for the faith of the gospel. Several years ago, I remember, it was 2012, it was after the presidential elections. I sat down with a very close friend. Two days after the election, he walks into the coffee shop and he was obviously sullen, downcast. And I asked him, I said, what is wrong? And he said, well, the wrong guy won. And America is going down. We're disintegrating. There are all kinds of problems. And he went on for the next five minutes just to enumerate and list those problems. He said, I'm discouraged. I'm depressed. I don't have any hope. 
It was interesting because as the conversation went on, we talked about whether an American political election changed the realities in heaven. Was Jesus' placard of name above all names somehow removed because a Republican, a Libertarian, or a certain Democrat won an election? No. He is on his throne. He reigns victorious. He's king of kings. He's lord of lords. That that reality doesn't change. And in my friend, there was a certain lament about a decline in America. And he was grieving that, feeling like something had been lost. And friends, it's really good for us, and it's right, to not live in light of a fact that you once felt like you were part of a majority, but to go ahead and get into Paul's shoes and live as a minority. Because when we live with the sense that we've lost something, we become negatively defined. We become about the faith of the Republican Party. We become about the faith of the Democratic Party. We become about all kinds of other causes. We become about lower taxes or higher taxes and all kinds of political agendas. And it's completely contrary to what Paul wants for us in the church because we're to be for the faith of the gospel. That's what's to live at the core of the community. Now we have our politics and we are to engage that and that is a good and right thing. But that's not what defines us. That King Jesus is upon his throne and nothing changes that. And so we're for the faith of this good news that Jesus is Lord and he rules over all. A positively defined mission as a minority in the city of man. That is where Paul lived. That's where he encourages us to live. And we're incredibly hopeful. We're incredibly committed because we don't believe that that changes. And this is the second implication. We have this positively defined mission, but we share in a growing confidence, even in the face of opposition. Look what he says in verse 28, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Because of preaching the gospel, Paul had landed himself in trouble. Saying that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not was not particularly popular in a Roman city. It got him in trouble. And so there was opposition. There were problems that their faith had brought about in the, in the Roman context. But rather than leading to being frightened and intimidated, Paul says that rather this should bolster your confidence. Says that when you are persecuted or when you're mistreated, when someone disowns you as a friend, when someone says they no longer want anything to do with you, when someone looks at you weird and gives you the silent treatment because they find out you're a Christian, whatever way it manifests in your life, that you're actually identifying with Jesus. Look what he says in, in verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. 
Now this is the most challenging verse for Calvinists that I know. We all love the fact that God grants us belief, that He opens dead, hard hearts to the gospel, that He gives us the ability through His Spirit to believe and trust in the gospel. He grants us that. What else does He grant us? Not only that we believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. This is what He welcomes us into. He welcomes us into an identification with Jesus and being misunderstood and being disowned by the world. He grants that to you. And we enter into that conflict in the same faith that as God raised Jesus and vindicated Him from His mistreatment, so God will come and renew the world, regaining it one day making all things right. And this is why Paul uses the language of salvation and destruction, because he's speaking of the end of the world when God comes to renew it. And salvation is a process of purification. It's where God cleanses the world and purges it from evil. And evil and injustice will be undone. It will be removed. Salvation and judgment always travel together. They are two sides of the same coin that it removes and purifies, and that it brings to new life. And guys, that's the vision that sustained Paul in the middle of his sufferings. And it's the same vision that God would sustain us with. A couple of years ago, I read David McAuliffe, and it's his book, 1776. Some of you may have read it. It's a pe- read it. It's a piece of historical fiction about the first year of the American Revolution. It's really well written, and McCulloch is good at getting inside of the history and creating context for how it must have felt and what it must have been like to be a part of the American Revolution in the early days. In reading it, I was gripping the book, white-knuckled. It was fascinating, and it was tense. You were feeling just how fragile it all really was. And was this thing going to work? And how in the world did, did it work against all the power of the British army and the British crown? And feeling the tension, all of a sudden I realized one night as I put down the book, I know how this ends. But I was feeling all this pressure, not able to go to sleep because it was so riveting and intense. But I know how this ends. And friends, our faith is the very same way. We know how this all wraps up. The question is, how confident are we about that? King Jesus is upon his throne. He reigns on that throne, and one day he will return to renew the world. And our faith in him that he will return to restore all things drives us forward and even enables us to suffer for him now for things not to go well because we're so confident that He will make it right. And we can live as a minority. We can be the people of God in the middle of an unbelieving world, and we're not worried about it. We don't define ourselves negatively. We define ourselves positively by the faith of the gospel, because we're so sure that that gospel reality, the good news of God's kingdom, will one day rule over everything. That's the hope we have. 
When Paul says, live as citizens worthy of the gospel, that's what he's drawing us up into. To be the city of God in the midst of the city of man, as Augustine says. To be God's new creation in the midst of an old, broken world. That's why we address conflicts. Because conflicts aren't a part of the new creation. That's why we are of one heart and mind. Because that's what it will look like in new creation. And friends, we are a foretaste. You're an appetizer of everything that is to come. That's what it is to be church. A common heart, common mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do recognize our faults and our failures that so often we fail to strive together, to have a common heart and a common mind, to be for the faith of the gospel, and we get co-opted by so many other causes. Give us the confidence and the growing faith to follow our Lord Jesus where He leads in this life, and that even if that is into persecution, if it is into opponents, if it's into adversity, that we be willing to go there, that we embrace that, May we be a community bound together in common mission for King Jesus, that that would be our center and that would be our core. And would you send us out to strive together as a team? Be at work in us, be at work among us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.